several several years ago, my oldest boy came to me. You could tell he was he was visibly upset. Something had been on his mind, and it was really bothering him. He looked at me and he said, he said "Dad, I got a question for you." He said, "In the Bible, it tells us about Jesus, this man named Jesus, right?" I knew he was going somewhere with this, though not sure where. Yeah, yeah, it does. It says, and the Bible says that uh, Jesus worked lots of miracles and that Jesus died for us and rose again. I said, yeah. He says, and the Bible talks about hell. It kind of tells us all about hell and how if we don't surrender our lives to him and believe that, that, that he died for us, that that's where we're going to end up for like forever. I said, yeah. But the Bible also tells us about heaven and the Bible tells us about some things that we should do and some things that we shouldn't do. And if we do the things we shouldn't do, we're going to make God mad and we stand before him at the end for judgment. He says, and dad, you 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 tell people to live their life based on the Bible. I said, yeah, he says, but dad. What if the Bible's not true? I mean, I know a lot of people who live for things and they think they're true, but they're not true. And so what if you're telling all these people to live their life based on the Bible and they sacrifice and they do this, but the end, it's just not true. Why do you believe the Bible's true? You know, I I can't imagine a more significant, a more profound question to be asked by anybody in this world. Why do you believe the Bible's true. You ever ask yourself that? Now, you, most of us won't ask that out loud because it's kind of a sign of weakness and challenging our faith and things. But maybe you come to a crossroads. And you know if you go this way, that's the way of the world. Man, that's, that's going to be fun and it's going to be easy and going to be popular. But if I do what the Bible tells me to do, it's going to be lonely and hard. And you ask yourself, is this really true? Because if it's not... And I get my, it's going to mess my life up. And I get one shot at life. I, I don't know. Or maybe you get in, in, in your job and you know if you go this way, you're going to have some promotion and you're going to be welcomed in the office. And it's going to be what you have to do in your industry to get ahead. You just have to do this. But if you do what the Bible says to do, you know, just be prepared to spend the rest of your career in the basement because no promotions for you. You're going to be ostracized. It's going to be a lonely career. And you say, man, I hope this Bible stuff is true. Because if it's not true, or maybe crisis hits your life. And you pray, you pray, but it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And, and the warm feelings that you had in church just aren't there anymore. And you say, what am I doing? Is, is this true? Every once in a while you have someone come to you and say, you know, prove to me scientifically that the Bible is of divine origin. And at that point, you've got to say straight up, you cannot prove the Bible is God's word scientifically. And before folk would say, aha, see, I knew it. Hey, you cannot prove George Washington was the first president of the United States scientifically. You cannot prove there was a battle of the Alamo scientifically. You cannot prove historical events scientifically by its very nature. Scientific, you have to be in the laboratory and they've got to be able to control the variables and test it over and over and over. That's scientific proof. You can't do that with historical events. This is the way our our court system works. Uh, You have to present evidence. Let me give you an example. There was a team recently from the church here that went out to the Dominican Republic, the DR. They said they went to the DR. 
I think they took the money and went to Vegas. That's what I think personally. How do you prove? I, I, prove to me that you went to the DR. Well, we, we sit down and maybe we interview them all. And their stories are, are pretty close. There's some differences, but they're pretty close. But they could have collaborated that, couldn't they? Yeah, sure. So they present the, the canceled airplane tickets. And we say, forgeries. Or maybe, you know, maybe they, we talked to the guys at United and they really did go down to the DR. But see, then they probably chartered a plane back to Vegas just to throw us off the path. I bet that's what happened. And they got the trinkets that they bought at the stores in the DR. And you say, ah, online. You bought those things online. Or maybe they, they, you go to the DR and you talk to the people who've seen them. And they say, yes, they were here. Could they not have paid those people off? Yeah, of course they could have. And, you know, you stack up evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence, the character, the people, on and on and on and on and on. And still, at the end of the day, you could say, I still don't believe it. I think they went to Vegas. Yeah, you're free to say that. But if you're rational and you're, you're, you don't have an axe to grind and you're looking at, at this thing objectively, evidence after evidence, after, you're saying, you know what? They went to the DR. That's how you prove the credibility of the Bible historically. And so what we're going to do this morning, something different. I, mean, I have not preached a message like this. I think I've preached one other than last hour. One in, in years and years and years. I think I've won my whole life. And so I'm not exegeting a passage of Scripture this morning. We're looking at Scripture as a whole this morning. I want to answer for you what I answered to, to Nathan and how I would answer that. Because I just wonder if sometimes living in this world, we're being bombarded with information that says the Bible is not credible. And if we're thinking it's not credible, we will not stand on it. I'm going to try to answer that a, a little bit this morning. So the first thing I said to Nathan is, Nathan, I, I trust the Bible because of the manuscript evidence. Now, what in the world is the manuscript evidence? What am I talking about? Well, let's, let's do a little creative imagination game. And this is going to really push your imagination because I want you to believe that I am the Apostle Paul. Okay, I know, I know that's really a stretch. I don't know if I can do that one, Mark. I know, but try, try. I'm the Apostle Paul. God one day speaks me. And I write it down. And it really was God speaking to me. Got it written down right here. Meanwhile, this is God's word. I take it to my family every morning. We're having devotions on this stuff every morning. And we're doing this for years. I'm taking this to my family. We're having devotions with it every year. And, and, And then I'm getting to a point where I'm ready to die. So I call my boys in. Say, I've got three boys. And I say, guys, I'm getting ready to die, but this is God's word. God gave this to me. We had devotions on this for years. And they look at it and they go, that's fantastic. That's right. You're going to trust now? Yes, I am. And they say, uh, they look among themselves and they say, you know what? Dad's copy is pretty tattered and torn. We want to preserve this. It's God's word. We better make our own copies. So all three of them sit down. They make a copy and, and then they go off. One goes over here. You guys will be Europe. One goes over here. And that's Asia. And the other one goes to the whole balcony. is going to be going to be North Africa. Okay. And what they do then is they live their life, and, and when they're getting ready to die, they pass it off to their child. And they said, hey, child, here's God's word. Now, this is the copy I made from my dad's, but it, it, it was authentic, and it's really. And so they look at it, and they say, well, your copy's kind of teared and torn, so I'm going to make a copy. And, and as time goes on, they give it to their children. And if you can imagine the pews, or each pew's a generation that, that keeps passing down and passing down and passing down and passing. When it gets to the wall... We're going to call the wall 1450 because in 1450, movable type, the printing press was invented. And so everything after the wall, everything after 1450 is a whole new ball game. But everything this side of it, all the copies, hand copies, those things are called manuscripts. Now, now let's say we've got a problem here. The last guy in Europe and in, and in Asia and North Africa, 
they, they check out their copy. And their copy has a little bit of discrepancy between each other. Can they know what I had in mind? Now, keep in mind, mine's the one that's inspired. Y'all's was not inspired. Y'all's were copies, manuscripts. The only one that got inspired was this one here. But problem is this one's been so old that if it's been dissolved. We don't have it anymore. We have no more copies, original autographs of the Bible. They're gone. They're all gone. So can you know what was really on the original? Well, how will you figure that out? Well, you do one of two things. First of all, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to find the oldest manuscript, the oldest copy I can find, the one that's right next to the, the original. I'm going to look for those and get the oldest ones I can get. That's the first thing you'll do. And the second thing you might want to do is you might want to gather all of, all of Europe's and, and, and all of Asia's and all of Africa's and kind of put them out chronologically and trace them back and forth and compare and see where the discrepancies came in and trying to arrive at the original message. That's what you'll do. Let me show you something. Pliny the Younger. Pliny wrote his history in about 61 A.D. The earliest copy we have. The guys, guys from 1450 on looked back to the oldest copy they could find. It was dated at 850 A.D., that 750-year gap. You follow me? Between the time he actually wrote and the oldest copy we have. That's, that's about 10, 15 manuscripts of copy, 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 copy. A lot of opportunity for there to be errors. But the oldest one we got of Pliny is still 850, 750 years removed from the original. And if you look as many copies as you can find, you can only find seven. Caesar, Caesar's Gallic Wars, you know, Hail Caesar. Uh, written 100 to 44 B.C., the earliest copy we've got. The, the, you know, we went back and tried to get as close to the original we can. It's A.D. 900, that's 1,000 years gap between the time it was originally written and the, the, the earliest one we have. A lot of opportunity for, for mistakes because a lot of copying happened between those two. And you look at the co- number of copies, you can only get 10 copies to compare them. Remember, older are the copies and more of the copies, the better, right? Plato wrote between 427 and 347. Earliest copy we've got is 900 A.D. That's a 1,200-year gap. And you've only got seven copies. Now, here's the deal. If you were to go to any state school that has an ancient literature department and you were to say, I don't believe Plato, I don't believe it's Caesar's, because the gap is so great between what we have and what was originally written and there are so few manuscripts, I don't believe it, you'd be laughed out. Of course this happened. Of course this is true. We know we've got the record. On and on. Look at Homer, his Iliad. This is number two on the list, by the way. This is, this is the second greatest uh, credible work of antiquity, Homer's Iliad. You read this in school. 900 B.C. it was written. Earliest copy is 400 B.C. We've got, I mean, it's about 500 year span, right? So they're getting a lot closer. Only 500 years separated from the original to our oldest copy. And we've got 633 copies of the Iliad. So we can compare and find it. And, don't, and by the way, the, the oldest copies, there are major, there are major um, uh, problems. They don't mesh up. So you have to trace this back and try to figure out what Homer actually wrote. This is where all these copies come in. New Testament. It's written between 49 and 90. Earliest copy we have is AD 130. That's 80 years. The gap is 80 years removed. In other words, we don't have the original anymore, but we may have what was written from the original, or, or one removed. Number of manuscripts, we've got over 24,000 manuscripts. 
Now, Frederick Kenyon, he was the uh, chief librarian of the uh, British Museum. He was the world's leading manuscript authority. I don't even know if this guy was a believer, but this is what he says. He says, it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain. Especially is this the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts, the early translations from it, and the quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said for no other ancient book in the world. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. He's saying the the, the Bible that you have really was exactly what Luke wrote. And it really is exactly what Matthew wrote. And if you want to say the Bible is, was, was handed down and, and I don't believe it, then what you have to say if you want to be consistent is you have to blow off all the former works of antiquity. You have to take them all combined. There was no Plato. There was no Aristotle. There was no Caesar's Gallic Wars because the Bible trumps them all combined. God knows that we need evidence. He provided a lot of it. And so you ask yourself, though, OK, so we have what Matthew wrote. But did Matthew write what's true? That's a good question. We need to ask that question. And so, so I would tell Nathan, another reason why I believe the Bible's true is by the testimony of the authors. And what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, let's just look at the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those guys were eyewitnesses. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I've watched enough Law and Order to know that in the courtroom, eyewitnesses blow away those folk who just are dealing with hearsay. You know, I saw it goes a lot further than, well, I didn't really see it. But I was dating this gal whose brother worked for this plumber whose grandmother happened to go with this biker who saw this after he got out of prison. You know, that one's a little bit more shaky. I don't know if I can put as much credibility in that story. Eyewitnesses always trump. Matthew was, was handpicked by, by Jesus. He, was, he hung out with Jesus. Uh, the, the Gospel of, of Mark was at Mark was actually Peter's uh, secretary. So th- this gospel could easily be called the gospel of Peter. It was Peter's perspective. It was one of the inner three. You've got Luke, who was Paul's disciple. You've got John, who was Jesus' best friend. Who better to write a story or write the biography of Jesus than John? Now, this is one of the reasons why I think God gives us four gospels. Because not just one witness, we got four different folk writing from their perspective, some of them using sources that the others were not using, and yet they collaborate fairly nicely. It's significant for us. Now, there's a theory out there that the Gospels were all written, or oral tradition, oral tradition, passed down, passed down, passed down, until they were finally written. And when they were finally written, this, this Jesus had become a superman, and he could walk on water. But see, initially that wasn't really the case. And you need to know that that's just not true. That's just not true. The events of the Gospels happen between 27 and 30. The vast majority of the events of the Gospels. last three years of Jesus' life. Well, the, the Gospels themselves were written between late 40s and early 60s. And this is why we know this. Um, let me give you an example here. Um, if you found a book written by a sailor on the USS Arizona... And he was writing this of what a great life it is on the USS Arizona and how fun it is and how big the boat is. And it's just great. And his last sentence was, it's fun to be a sailor on the USS Arizona. What would you perceive when was this was written? It was probably written before December 7th, 1941, wasn't it? 
Because December 7, 1941, the USS Arizona went to the bottom of Pearl Harbor. It was no longer fun to be a sailor on that boat. Well, in 70 A.D., something bigger than the USS Arizona collapsed for the Jewish people. Titus came through, wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, burned it down. Not just a couple thousand Jews were, were killed. Tens of thousands of Jews were massacred. And for an Orthodox Jew, to lose the temple was, was equal to losing God. I mean, this was a massive thing. And yet, the end of each of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the temple's still, still going. It's still going on. Now, if something that big happened, they would have included it. But they did not include it. The Didache, it was written in 80 A.D. It's like a uh, small booklet on how to do church. You want to be a church planner in 80 A.D.? This is going to tell you how to do it. Um, it quotes Matthew. Now, if you're going to quote Matthew, I'm guessing Matthew has to be written before it can be quoted, right? Clement of Rome in 96 quotes Matthew. Ignatius quotes the Gospel of Matthew. Polycarp, who's John's disciple. Now, this is important. Listen for a second. Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp, between those three guys... That between 95 and 110, they quote 24 of the 27 New Testament books. Now, here's the deal. Clement's hanging out in Rome. But these other guys, Ignatius and Polycarp, they're hanging out in Turkey, Smyrna, 2,000 plus miles away. Not an easy ride. And this was before email and electronic media, right? So, so for the books to travel that far and become accepted, I mean, these, we, we can assume properly that these things were written significantly before. 95 to 100 for them to make it that distance and be accepted. The, the, these texts that we have were not just oral tradition passed on. They were the eyewitness accounts and what was actually written. And another reason why, uh, well, let me see. I think, let's look at Luke chapter 4. We've got it down on your slide, I think. Luke's writing. And he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I think he's referring to Matthew and Mark there. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Uh, Luke, no doubt, interviewed Mary. Uh, Polycarp, who is John's, the Apostle John's disciple, he says this. He says, so firm is the ground upon which these Gospels rest, the plurality of Gospels by the time Polycarp's around, that the very heretics themselves bear witness of them. Papias, just a few years later, he says, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately all that he remembered. So Mark made no mistake in writing down certain things as he called them to mind, for he paid attention to one thing, to omit none of the things that he had heard and to make no false statements in any of them. The New Testament was completely done before 100 A.D., accepted by the churches. It wasn't going to be until about 200 that they finally had to say these were the books because so many other things were starting to creep in. Also with the testimony of the authors, I would say that they wrote historically, and this is what I mean by that. When you go out and remember your first date, now for some of y'all it was a long, long time ago, some of y'all hasn't happened yet. But on your first day, remember your first date. Do you go out and you start telling all your dysfunction to the person that you, you're dating? Now, don't tell me you don't have any dysfunction because I know many of y'all and everyone I've met has got some here, all right? We don't, we don't put that out because we're trying to cover ourselves. We're trying to, they'll find out about that junk in time. We're not trying to be deceptive, but we're not going to show them our dirty laundry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if they're writing these books, 
How would they write about themselves? Would they say, oh, I started walking on the water and then I lost my faith and I started to sink and Jesus had to pull me up and yell at me? Personally, I'll leave that part out. I'd just say, you know what, I walked on water and they don't need to know anything else. But, uh, you know, they, they included that. They included the part about them arguing amongst each other as far as who is who's the greatest. I'd leave that part out. They talk about how they all ran away and left Jesus. They're, they're cowards in the Garden of Gethsemane. I would have forgot that part. I wouldn't have included that. They, if you want a book that's going to be accepted by Jewish people, would you include a doctrine like the Trinity? I would have left that doctrine out. But, but they're writing just what happened. Uh, another reason that, that strikes me is, is the fact that they defended their words in the face of martyrdom. I mean, what did they get for this? Did they get some royalty check? Was the book published? Did they, were they famous? Did they get some prestige? Did they get the corner office? They were, they, they were ostracized. They were excluded from the temple. They were kicked out of their families. Their families suffered persecution. Ultimately, they were murdered because of this. And in the face of their being murdered, in the midst of it, they defended what they said. Not because they were, I mean, because this was true. They they were getting nothing positive out of this, but this was just what happened. You can kill me for what, but this is what was. The the testimony of the authors is huge. Now, the question that may come up is, is what about those other Gospels? You know, how come, have you heard this? Have you heard this? Da Vinci called several years ago, uh, Dan Brown, he kind of, he really didn't start this, but he does talk about it. And we're not going to do an expose on the Da Vinci Code. But uh, in the story, you've got two uh, uh, main characters, and they're looking for the Holy Grail, which is actually the bones of Mary Magdalene, who was married to Jesus, according to the book. I know, I know, I know. Um, they go to this Bible scholar, Sir Lee Teabing. And, and Sir Lee Teabing begins to talk to one of them, and this is what he says. By the way, part of the dangers with the, danger with the Da Vinci Code I mean, it's a, it's a fun read in many ways, but it's done more damage because he does so much research. And there's, there's a lot of, of authentic things that he has in there, but he mixes them with such straight-up, untruth heresy that for someone to be able to understand what is right and what is wrong, they don't. And so they, they, they buy the whole thing. Anyway, Sir Lee Teeming says, The Bible is the product of man, my dear, not God. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Now, this is fiction, right? But National Geographic comes out a couple years later. Did you see this documentary on the Gospel of Judas? This was huge. They found another Gospel. This one was written from the perspective of Judas. Actually, they, they had found many other Gospels. Nagamrabi, Egypt, they found, was it 40 plus Gospels? There's a Gospel of Philip. There's a Gospel of Mary Magdalene. There's a Gospel of Thomas. And what the folk at National Geographic would say, what they were tended, wanting us to believe, is that these Gospels over here, these Philip, Thomas, Matthew, uh, Philip and, and Thomas and Mary Magdalene, were on the same ground as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what happened is when the folks started to decide which book should be in and which one should be out, they excluded these because these didn't say what they wanted to say. See, they, they held on to these. These allowed them power over people. And so these are the ones that they held on to. This is what they're, they're, they would say. This is what they've said. But the issue is this, you just need to know about these other Gospels. You can get them on Amazon.com, you can get them at, at, I'm guessing, Barnes & Noble. They're called the Gnostic Gospels. And all these were written between 150 and 600 A.D., hardly eyewitnesses. And there is no scholar, Christian or pagan or otherwise, that that believes that Judas actually wrote the Gospel of Judas. It was written 150, I guess it was written 100 years after the fact. 
There's no scholar that believes that Mary Magdalene actually wrote the Gospel of Mary or that Thomas, Doubting Thomas, actually wrote the Gospel of Thomas. What they realize is that these were written not by eyewitnesses, but by people who had an agenda. It's a, different, it's a cult they were pushing. And that, that these folk were obviously uh, unethical and using someone else's name because they knew no one's going to buy the gospel of Horatio. But see, maybe you'll buy the gospel of Thomas. And so they're using some apostle's name to try to gain credibility. And I think it's safe to say that if their ethics are such that they're going to use, they're going to lie about the authorship. Perhaps there may be other things in there. This is what we need to know. The gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only reason they're in your Bible and not others is because they are the only eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. They are the only eyewitness accounts. By best guess from the atheistic scholars, these others are dated 100 plus years after Jesus was around, not eyewitnesses. I would say that the testimony of the authors is huge. Uh, Another reason why I trust the Bible is the archaeological evidence. And y'all, this this alone could be a series in a major seminar. Do you know that if you have a Bible that's dated 1947 or before, your Old Testament, and this is important to know, keep in mind that Malachi is probably written about 400 B.C., right? Your Old Testament was based on manuscripts, the oldest we had at the time, that were dated 900 A.D., the oldest manuscript we had of the Old Testament prior to 1947 was about 1,300 years at least removed from the events. That's a big gap. Lots of, lots of opportunity for copying errors. And the folk would say, the skeptics would say, Christians, don't tell me about your Old Testament because it's so far removed from the actual time it was written. Lots of copies, lots of opportunity for error. And one of the things they took a shot at specifically was Isaiah 53. You know Isaiah 53. It talks about Jesus as the suffering servant. It doesn't mention his name. But he says the Messiah will come and he'll bear the iniquity for all of us. And it, it gives you a picture that as you read it, you say, aha, Jesus. And they, say, they would say, well, yeah, but since the oldest text you have is 900 A.D., this section was probably added after the fact to help Jews believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Then in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. 40,000 Old Testament fragments and texts um, dated between 200 and 100 B.C. In this was, was a full scroll of Isaiah. And at this point, the skeptic said, Aha, the oldest manuscript you had before was 900 A.D. Now we're pushing all the way to 200 B.C., just a short distance between that and the original. And now we're going to look and we're going to see how many heirs you have in your Old Testament. And as they looked into Isaiah, they looked the area where we would call Isaiah 53. It was there 200 years before Jesus was around. And when they compared it to the oldest copy, you know what they found? They found that there was only stylistic differences. Other than that, it was almost exact to what they had. And they were forced to step back and say, well, I guess the Jewish folk, when they copied, they took pretty good care to copy accurately. The Bible that you have really is. Um, some don't realize this, but the Dead Sea Scrolls also bear witness to the New Testament. You know, some of the books they found, they found nine fragments dated about 50 A.D. Uh, Mark, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Peter, and James, I believe. And now, now this is real, real interesting because the New York Times got a hold of this. And remember, they were thinking that oral tradition, oral tradition gospels were written into much later. New York Times says, if this is true, it would prove that at least one of the gospels... That of St. Mark was written only a few years 
after the death of Jesus. For the longest time, the critics took a shot at our understanding of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, which was supposedly written 1450 B.C. Because language was not that far developed, writing was not that far developed, and, and legal systems like what Moses talks about were not that far developed yet. It was too primitive. And then in northern Syria, 1974, the, the dig of Ebla, they found 17,000 tablets that were extensive. Most all of them were extensive legal documents written 1,000 years before Moses. In, in Isaiah 20, verse 1, Isaiah lists one of the Assyrian kings as, by the name of Sargon. Now, the problem is we have the Assyrian Chronicles, which is the histories of the Assyrians written by the Assyrians. And they list all their kings, and Sargon's name is not in their list. And the historians were saying, well, obviously, who knew the Assyrian kings better, the Assyrians or the Israelites? Well, the Assyrians obviously did. This is an error in the Bible. Until they unearthed a palace city of one of the Assyrian kings who was so arrogant that he had his name stamped into every brick of the city. Guess what his name was? Sargon. If you go to the University of Chicago, you can see a lot of his, his relics there today. The Oriental Institute Museum. Um... 2 Kings 3 talks about an incredible story of how the Israelites are coming against the king of Moab. They've got him pinned in to a city. They're getting ready to, to take over the city. And then what happens, according to 2 Kings 3, is the king of Moab comes out on the walls of the city and sacrifices his son. And it doesn't tell us why, but suddenly the Israelites withdraw and they leave him alone. And, and fascinating story, but considered a nice, fanciful story until... The Mesa stone was found in the ruins at Moab. The original is in London. The copy is in Chicago. And if you read the Mesa stone, and it's fascinating because it's obviously not written. I think it's in Ugaritic or something. But they have the, the translation right next to it in, at the Oriental Institute. And as you read it through, it feels like you're reading 2 Kings 3. Exact same story. The Israelites who worship Yahweh were coming against me and they were pressuring me and they drove us into our city and we were going to be crushed. But then I took my son, Chemish, my son, and I sacrificed him to my God, Chemish, on the wall. And our God gave us victory for the Israelites withdrew. Exact same story. You know, there has never been, this is important to know, there has never been an archaeological find ever. And you've got to know people have tried that discredits the Bible. At the the uh, tour at the Oriental Institute in Chicago uh, had a guide one time. She was certainly not a believer, but she knew her archaeology. And she said there was a day when archaeologists uh, blew off the Bible. But now, before they do any digs, they go to the Bible first because the Bible has never been proven false historically. Now, she didn't believe in all the miracles and stuff, but she said Bible is absolutely true historically. There, there, is, there is no... Science, there's no archaeology that has ever disproven Scripture. That's huge for us. We do not need to be afraid of these things because the God of science and the God of history, uh, this, is, this is true. It, it, it just validates his, his word for us. Sometimes people will come to me with, what about this? I'll say, I don't know. That's a good question. But I do know this. There is so much evidence stacked up for the word of God that if someone is objective... And they are really looking to know the truth. And you look at the evidence. What you'll say is, I better look in that book. I better see what it has to say. Martin Luther understood 
this, that if you, if you know the, the, the credibility of the Bible, you're going to be able to stand on it no matter what comes against you. And, and Luther produced all kinds of, of literature right after the printing press, all kinds of literature against the corruption in the church at the time and, and the, the wrong doctrine in the church at the time. And so he got himself upset, you can imagine, with some of the church hierarchy. And so by imperial edict, he was summoned to a, a uh, he thought it was going to be a debate in the German city of Worms. And he went there and he thought, okay, we get to debate my, my literature and the things that I wrote, and I'll be happy to debate this with, with the church leaders. But he walked in and he realized this was not a debate. This was a trial. And they had all this stuff on the table in the front. And they said, Martin Luther, come forward. He came forward and they said, are these your things? Did you write these things? And he said, yes. And they said, will you recant these things? And he said, well, I want to talk about them. And they said, no, 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 we're not talking. Will you recant, yes or no? And he knows that if he does not recant, he's going to be called a heretic. He's going to be judged as a heretic. That's death. So he says, well, let me think about it. He goes away that night, comes back the next day. They said, did you write these things? He said, yes. They said, will you recant? And this is what he said. He talked for a little bit, but this is what he says. He says, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the Scriptures to which I have appealed. And my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He expected to die with this comment and a contract was put out on on his life for us here in the states anyway i doubt that our stance on god word, god's word will cost us our life now today some of our brothers in the sudan and other parts of the world it does cost them their life but not us today but here anyway but when the wind of adversity blows and trials blow and temptation blows understanding the credibility of god's word the truthfulness of god's word allows us to stand on it. You know, there's a, uh, a song that we sing as children. The B-I-B-L-E, right? And it says, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. You know, that's an easy song to sing as children, isn't it? When the embarrassment just isn't as great. And when the pain of obeying the Bible just isn't as great. And the cost... Of obeying the Bible just isn't as great. It's an easy song to sing. But as adults, I wonder how things would be different if every morning before we head off to school, before we head to the office, before we get around our activities, if we drop out of bed on our knees and we'd recommit to God. God, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me today. Today, I want to stand alone on it. The B-I-B-L-E. If that would you, would you stand with me as we close the service? Let's stand. And I want to lead you in that song. And if that's your conviction, if that's your heart, would you sing it with me? With what you got, okay? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. You're dismissed.